All right. Well, before we get started, I want to thank everyone that kind of helped uh, through the last month, or more than a month. I want to thank Chris and Gaby for uh, stepping in on the pulpit. Appreciate that. Thank you to everybody that kept the ship afloat and uh, while it was gone. Looks like got a lot of work done here, so looking forward. It's an uh, exciting time, so it's good to be back, and uh, we've got a lot to cover today because, you know, when you take a pastor out of the pulpit for over a month, you know, it just kind of builds up, and, and so uh, uh, we've got a long one. You ready for that? So <laughs> We're in Matthew chapter 26 today, so we're going to continue in our journey through the Gospel of Matthew, and if you'd like to follow along, uh, through your Bibles, we are in 26. We're going to look at verses 1 through uh, 16. And if you ever watch a movie, especially uh, that deals with battle or deals with war, there's almost always a scene before the big you know, kind of climactic fight where you get a chance to kind of get a little insight into what people are thinking before they go into this moment of crisis in their life, before they go into this battle. And oftentimes... It's, uh, it's an insight that doesn't have any words. It's just the look on their face. Uh, for example, uh, this is from a, a show called Band of Brothers. And this guy has been told he's going to jump behind enemy lines the day before D-Day. And that's what he's just realized this is going to be the crisis that he faces in his life. And it, there's no words that are said. You just kind of look at his face. And you look particularly at his eyes. And you kind of see... There's something going on behind there. He's thinking something. And is it fear? Is it concern? You know, it's, it's hard to put all into words what it is that he's thinking, but it's clear there's something going on without words being said as he's considering this battle that he faces, as he considers this crisis that he's facing. And I've never been to war, but like many of us, all of us, I mean, I've, I've faced some crises in my life. And like many of you, as a believer, I go through a certain set of filters that are kind of automatic when I face a crisis or face a battle in my life. One of the filters that goes through is, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? It sounds a little contrite or cliche, but that does go through my mind. What would Jesus do? Which is quickly followed by, what does Jeff want to do? Uh, you know, because sometimes those two things don't necessarily sync up. You know, there's what Jesus would do and there's what Jeff wants to do. And then there's things like, you know, well, what are going to be the costs? You know, Jesus talks about counting the costs. Uh, who's going to be affected by this, you know, situation and how I deal with it? And how are they going to be affected? And as you know, sometimes it's easy to come to a conclusion. And sometimes it's not. And in the Gospel of Matthew, as we, as we are in chapter 26 here, it's beginning, it's the week leading to the crucifixion. In fact, Matthew 26 picks up with two days before Passover. And Jesus is actually crucified on the afternoon of Passover. And so there's a lot of things going through his mind. We know that he was feeling the crisis because uh, the Gospels tell us that when he was in the garden and he was praying, he asked the disciples to watch over him. They didn't. Uh, they fell asleep. Maybe it's because of the stress in their own life. We don't really know why. We know Jesus sweat drops of blood. There was, this was a crisis as he was facing the crucifixion. And it wasn't just a crisis for him, it was a crisis for everyone around him who cared about him. So we're going to look into this, this passage today and kind of asking the question, what are these people thinking as they go into this crisis? 
So the first group that we hear something being said to or talked about or talked to in this passage are the disciples. And it says this, When Jesus had finished saying these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Now the things that Jesus had been talking about here when he says, when he said, finished talking, saying these things, it was the things around his second coming. In chapters 24 and 25, he talks about the events of his second coming and then several parables that illustrate the attitude that is necessary to be prepared for his second coming. But before the second coming can take place, there, there's a mission in his first coming that has to take place, and that's going to be the cross. And he tells the disciples in such a manner that he expects that they should be able to clue in by now to what's going on. As you know... The Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over and crucified. What's interesting in this passage is that this is the third time in the Gospel of Matthew where he has plainly told the disciples what is going to happen. I'm going to be turned over, tortured, crucified. In some places he talks about the resurrection. In this place he doesn't. In the first two places, there's a response from the disciples. And it's kind of an odd response. Actually, the first one's not really a response from the disciples as it is so much a response from one of the disciples' mother. Uh, The first time we read in Matthew that he says this, I'm going to be turned over and crucified, the mother of the apostles, James and John, decides that after he says he's going to be turned over, crucified, that this is a good time to try and make sure her boys get a place in the kingdom of God. And so if you remember the story, she comes up and says, place one of my sons at your right hand, one of your sons at your left hand. And when you read about that story, it's kind of an odd one because in a nutshell, basically Jesus says, I'm going to be, you know, there's going to come a time where you go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be turned over and I'm going to be crucified. And the, and the mother's response to that is, okay, can my boys have number one and number two place in your organization? I mean, there's a total disconnect with what's going on there. And I think this is why Jesus responds in this, do you think you can drink from the same cup I'm going to drink from? And James and John go, yep. And Jesus says, well, (laughs) yeah, you will, but it's not my place to decide who gets number one and number two place in the kingdom of God. The other time Jesus says, he tells the disciples plainly what's going to happen. That's the time when Peter stands up and rebukes Jesus. And rebuke is more than disagree. Rebuke is to say, you are wrong. And of course, then, then there's that famous reply from Jesus where he tells Peter, whom he had just said is going to be the rock upon which the church is going to be built, get behind me, Satan. The things you want are not of God, but of man. And so the, so the first two times Jesus talks about his crucifixion, the response from the disciples, neither one of them are a very appropriate response. Interestingly, in this time, two days before, and Jesus says, as you know, this is coming up, their response is silent. There is no response. At least the way Matthew uh, presents it in the gospel, there's no response. Why is that? What are they thinking? And we don't really know exactly what they're thinking because there is no actual text saying in their minds they were thinking this. But it seems like when you look at their reaction after the crucifixion and even after the resurrection to a certain degree, they did not get what Jesus was saying. As plainly as Jesus spoke to them about what was going to happen, they seemed to be caught off guard when it happens. When Jesus is crucified, all the disciples of the, of the apostles, except for John, desert him. 
And even after the resurrection, it seems if you read the Gospel of John, it seems like the Apostle Peter still really didn't have in mind that he was going to be reinstated and be able to follow Jesus. And as you know, Thomas, Thomas is like, I don't believe any of this has happened as far as the resurrection goes until I can put my hands into, the, into the, his wounds. They didn't seem to get it, even though Jesus was plainly speaking to them what was going to happen. Why is that? Was there a spiritual blockage put there by God? Were they destined to not understand? I don't think so. Why would Jesus bother to tell them all this three times if they were destined not to understand? Was it that they just didn't want to hear what Jesus had to say? It was so beyond their desires and conceptions that they just couldn't hear it because it was nowhere close to what they expected Jesus to be about? We don't know. But we do know they weren't hearing him. And this last time, two days before the, the Passover, two days before his crucifixion, essentially, their response is silence. The next group we have are the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now, they're kind of the, the villains of the gospel. They're sort of the foil to Jesus. And that may be, they may be kind of made into a bit of a caricature sometimes by the church. They had their reasons for why they disagreed with Jesus vehemently, but a lot of it just had to do with pride. It says this, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in a place of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Now we know from other passages that the religious leaders are very concerned that a lot of the people were going over to Jesus. That they were, they were becoming drawn to him. And they were leaving their authority and going over to Jesus' authority. And they didn't like that. And they also believed that Jesus was dangerous because Jesus was in their minds, challenging the law of Moses. And if you broke the law of Moses, then the wrath of God would fall upon the people. This was a belief then, and they would point to the Babylonian exile as an example of the wrath of God falling upon them, and also the grace of God bringing them back. And to this day, if you go to Israel today, and you stand at the wall of Jerusalem, where they, at the wall where the, it's a retaining wall of the temple, it's not the temple wall itself, but the retaining wall, which is called the wailing wall, where you see people will be praying there, and you ask an Orthodox Jewish person, why do you still think it's necessary to keep the law? They'll very, they will usually say because, first of all, the nice thing they'll say is the law is the way we express our love toward God. The deeper kind of heart fear is if we don't keep the law, history tells us God will punish us. And so they still believe this today. And Jesus, in the minds of the Pharisees, was a dangerous person because he was, in their minds, breaking the law and leading people away from the law. The other thing is that they didn't want to have happen. They didn't want a riot to take place because Rome had allowed a, some, a certain amount of autonomy among the Jewish people in the Palestinian, in the land at that time was called Palestine. And they were afraid that if they upset the Romans, then they would bring in a, a force of peacekeeping which would eliminate the authority of the chief priests and scribes. And so they wanted to kill him. Of all the people in this little section of what are they thinking, it's actually these folks that are the clearest and able to understand what they're thinking. It's not saying they were thinking clearly, but you understand their motives. Their motives are most clear. Then you get into a, a very unusual event that takes place. 
It's a curious action. And when we read in the Gospel of John, which makes this even more curious, is that the Gospel of John has an incident which takes place six days before Passover at the house, we presume the house of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, because it says, well, Jesus was in having dinner with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Mary came with a box of, of, of perfume in an alabaster box, and she poured it upon the feet of Jesus. And the disciples react in almost the exact same way as they react in the incident in Matthew. But the incident in Matthew is different in several significant ways than the incident in, in John. Let's read it. It says, when Jesus was in Bethany, Bethany was a village that was outside of Jerusalem. It's kind of Jesus' base of operation. He didn't stay in Jerusalem during Passover. He would go to Jerusalem, preach, be in the temple, come back, spend the night in this village called Bethany. When Jesus was in, the, in Bethany in the home of a man named Simon the leper, so there's one of the differences. The home is a different place, Simon the leper, a woman, she's not named, whereas in John, it's Mary. Mary, the sister of Martha, not Mary, his mother. A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. That is exactly the same. Which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. So instead of his feet, this time it's his head. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. This is the exact same response as what took place six, uh, four days earlier. They were also indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to him, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured the perfume on my body, she did tell to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, whenever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So this is a very similar event taking place. What were these women thinking? It's an unusual act just to walk in and start to anoint someone with very expensive perfume, one on his feet, one on his head, separated in the event by only four days. It seems a bit odd. And I don't know exactly what these women were thinking, and I don't think that they were necessarily in their minds thinking they're going to prepare Jesus for burial. I believe in their minds it was an act of devotion. It was an act of love, which Jesus puts into the context of his burial. Because, again, the folks don't really seem to get that Jesus is really talking about the fact he's going to be crucified. His own disciples don't get it. Maybe these ladies got it because these women were the ones, women stayed with Jesus through the whole thing up to his crucifixion. The only apostle that stayed with him was John. I don't think they really knew exactly. I don't think they did it with the intention of, oh, I'm going to anoint him for his burial. I think that was, they were acting as an act of faith and devotion, which Jesus then gave context to. And some commentators will tell you that this incident in, John, in Matthew's gospel and the incident in John's gospel are the same thing. It's just that the story is told differently. And, and one of the excuses they'll give is because the reaction of the disciples is the exact same the act is very similar. But there are these significant differences. And I can tell you from personal experience, sometimes strange things come in groups. When I was young in my pastorate, like the first two months in my pastorate when I was in Oregon, I came to a very fractured church. And, uh, and again, I've told you before that the churches that have the most difficulty really need the most experience to help put them back together. Usually their finances are a disaster by that point, and the only ones they can, bother to, can afford to hire are someone who has no experience 
coming out of seminary, and I was one of those guys. And I walked into this church, and it was, they were fighting, and they were angry, and they were split into all these little camps. And there was a group that was led by a group of women that after about a month decided that I wasn't the guy that should be here. And they began to kind of foment a lot of discussion and things kind of behind my back. And I don't know what was going on in their minds. But one day, while I was giving the sermon, one of the ladies came up and she wanted to wash my feet. Now, I'm a pastor with experience now. I know how I would handle that which if any of you wants to try that, it's going to be, sit down. But I didn't know what to do. So she washed my feet in front of everybody. And I was embarrassed. I'm even embarrassed thinking about it. And I was embarrassed and I felt manipulated. And it was all done in this kind of, in kind of this idea of repentance. And maybe it was. I don't know. And I thought, oh, let's hope that doesn't happen again. Within the week, a different lady came in of that same group into my office and wanted to wash my feet. I was like, what is going on? And so again, fine. I had very clean feet that week. (laughs) But if I were to tell that story to someone, if I told someone the story about what happened in front of everybody, and then I told the story because of a different context, a different reason about the woman that just came into my office you would think, and then they compared notes, they would think, is Jeff telling the truth? Is this a story that, that he's kind of changing in order to fit? Because it, it sounds very similar. But one took place in front of the entire church, one took place just in my office. And I can tell you they both took place. And again, if anyone wants to wash anything of mine, wash my car, my feet are fine. But the point is, is that under stress, people will sometimes react in unusual ways. And what exactly these women were thinking when within the same week, within the same village, they perform essentially the same act, the disciples respond in the same way. It's not, it's not unheard of. It's not an unusual thing. People under times of stress will do things. And maybe one kind of took their cue from the other. We do know that if one anointed his feet and one anointed his head, then Jesus was anointed from head to toe and ready for his burial. And maybe... That was part of the point, that this act of devotion prepared him from head to toe for what he was going to go through. And these women probably didn't understand the depth of what they were doing, but Jesus did. And he interpreted their action for them. He interpreted their act of devotion and faith for them and gave it a depth that we read about to this very day. And then we come to Judas. Judas is probably the most enigmatic figure in the gospel stories. He's the one we'd really like to know. What is this guy thinking? Because he's chosen by Christ to be one of the disciples. The gospels tell us Jesus prayed all night before he chose the disciples. And so this wasn't a mistake. What is the deal with Judas? What's going on? Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, Matthew has to make it clear he's talking about Judas Iscariot because another one of the disciples was also known as Judas. It was a very common name. It comes from being Jude of the tribe of the people of Judah. It was super common back in the day. It still is today among uh, Jewish people in Israel. He went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins and from then on Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. 
What is Judas thinking? Man, we'd love to know that. What is motivating him to betray Christ? You know, when you put together Judas' story from all the different Gospels, it's a complex story. It's not a simple story of a guy that just wanted some money. Because 30 pieces of silver isn't that much. It's about a month wage. It's not an exorbitant amount of money. 3,000 euros, 4,000, 5,000 euros, somewhere in there. It's a month's wage. And the Gospels of both John and Luke, they emphasize the role of Satan in the, in the story of Judas. They say Satan entered into him or Satan motivated him. Mark and, and Matthew, they don't mention Satan's role. Matthew and John have an, an, an unusual exchange that takes place in the Last Supper. Particularly John's exchange is a strange one because Jesus says, whoever dips their bread into this bowl is going to be the one that betrays me. And then when you read the text, it looks like Judas goes, mm, doop, and just puts it in right there in front of everybody. And you think, is that, is that how it went down? Because if that is the way it goes down, the disciples don't really comment on it. John makes a little bit of a comment saying that, they, that when Judas leaves, they thought they went out to go buy something. And there's this very strange conversation between Judas and Jesus where Jesus looks at Judas and says, go and do what you must do, but do it quickly. And there's been lots of speculation. You know, what, is, what does that mean? What is Jesus saying to him? We don't know. There's no more added to it. But I think there's some clues in the Scripture that Matthew gives us about what Judas is thinking. Now, if you remember the, the, the fuller story of Judas, he's paid this 30 pieces of silver. And then when he realizes, you know, when he, I, I guess he witnesses the crucifixion of Jesus, Again, one of the questions is, maybe he expected Jesus to rise up and push back and not allow himself to be crucified. And then maybe Judas was trying to kind of push Jesus to the front of exposing himself as the King of kings and Lord of lords. But whatever, we don't really know. But what we do know is Judas repents hard. And he feels terrible about it. He takes the money, he throws it back into the temple and kills himself. He just loses all hope, loses all direction. And the priests, the chief priests, they, they decide that this, blood, this money is blood money, which is somewhat ironic because they're the ones that contracted out basically Jesus' life. So they take the money and they use it to buy a potter's field. This is all uh, discussed in Matthew 27, eight, uh, 10, 9 through 10. It says, and, th and then they, Matthew says, This is what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet as fulfilled. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took 30 silver coins, the price set of them by the people of Israel. And they used it to buy a potter's field as the Lord commanded me. And if you like to go back and forth, this is, from the, this is actually from Zechariah. You may say, well, why does the scripture say it's from Jeremiah? Because the way the scriptures were organized back in the time of Christ, they didn't have the same organization we have. Like I've told you before, they didn't have chapters and verses the way that we have. That was put in year, uh, centuries later to help people find things. And the Bible, the Old Testament, was organized differently, and all the prophets were put together, and the first one in all the prophets was Jeremiah. So very often they would just say, whenever they talked about any of the prophets, they would just say it's found in Jeremiah because he was the first one in that book of prophets. It's kind of the same way how the German Bible, uh, at least the older translations, you know, they don't have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They have 1st Moses, 2nd Moses, 3rd Moses, 4th Moses, 5th Moses. It's not to say that the organization makes the scripture wrong. It's just organized differently. And that's how they organized it back then, Jeremiah. But if you looked for it in your Bibles today, you'd find it in Zechariah. 
And what's interesting that I found interesting anyways is that, and I couldn't find this talked about anywhere in any commentary, is that Matthew quotes Zechariah at least three times. Another place he quotes him is this place where he talks about uh, Jesus coming on the donkey. He says, uh, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. The prophet he's talking about is Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. That's also found in Zechariah. And then later when Jesus says to his disciples, this very night you'll all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That also comes from Zechariah. So Matthew quotes Zechariah three times at least. And that made me wonder, maybe there's a clue in Zechariah as to what Judas was thinking. And so I bought a, a commentary when I went on vacation that was literally 100 times longer in explaining the book of Zechariah than the book of Zechariah was. This commentary was 1,000 pages long to explain a text that covers about 10 pages. And, and I bought this thing, and I, I, I didn't read all 1,000 pages. I read some of the relevant parts, and I was quite discouraged to find out that the, this commentary, 1,000 pages long on the book of Zechariah, didn't make any of the connections in Zechariah to Matthew. Because it was just writing it from the, from the perspective that Zechariah, the prophet himself, would have written by. So it was written from very much an Old Testament point of view. So then I looked at all these other commentaries about Matthew. They never make these connections either. I don't know why. Because they're there over and over again. Well, at least three times. But I want to read to you the section from Zechariah that is relevant to this whole thing. Because I think it's important to, to see how prophecy in the Bible kind of comes around. Now, Zechariah is written about 500 years before Christ. The people of Israel have returned from Babylon. They've rebuilt the walls, kind of the temple, but they're in a deep kind of place of just kind of, yeah, who cares anymore? And Zechariah and Haggai are two who are contemporaries. And like Ezra and Nehemiah, it seems like their main goal is to try and get the people motivated again, motivated to, to keep being the people of God. But they don't want to. And there's a big falling off in, in, uh, in relationship. And so this is what it says. Now, Zechariah, I'm going to kind of explain it as we read it through because it's universally seen as one of the most difficult books to understand because Zechariah talks about things that Matthew uses to be prophetic about Jesus' first coming, and there's elements into it that talk about his second coming, and there's elements which are relevant to the context of its day. It is complex. thousand pages to explain ten pages of text. So it says this. This is what the Lord my God says. So Zechariah is speaking here. Pasture the flock marked for slaughter. So Zechariah is told by God, you need to pasture this flock. And they're marked by slaughter, which means these are people that are under oppression and they're being abused. They're under oppression by their own leadership as well as the people around him. And so Zechariah is told, you need to lead them. You need to pasture them like the shepherd would pasture the sheep. Because these folks are being abused. But on top of that, they're not very nice sheep. The sheep themselves aren't a bunch of doe-eyed innocents. Oh, we're just being picked on. They're kind of jerks themselves. And then he says, this is how he describes their being uh, abused. Their buyers slaughter them and go unpunished. So they're just being bought for slaughter. And those who sell them say, praise the Lord, I'm rich. So no one cares about them. The, the, the shepherds are like, yeah, I'm rich because I sold them. And the people who bought them just bought them for slaughter. 
Their own shepherds do not spare them. For I will no longer have pity on the people of this land, declares the Lord. God's tired of their attitude. But he tells Zechariah, you need to pasture them. I will hand everybody over to their neighbor and his king, and they will oppress the land, and I will not rescue them from their hands. So God's not happy. So Zechariah says this, So I pastured the flock marked for slaughter. (laughs) Old Testament's kind of funny sometimes. It basically says, So I, you know, I took over this group of people who were doomed for death, particularly the oppressed of the flock. I took two staffs and called one favor and the other one union. So he used kind of as this illustration of what was going on. He took a staff and said, this is favor. Some of your Bibles might say beauty, and the other is union or together. And they were to represent the favor of God and the union of the kingdoms of both Israel and Judah. Coming back, they had been split, if you remember, uh, before the exile, coming back and trying to be one people. So this was the vision that he had. There's the favor of God in one, that represents one staff and the unity of the people of Israel coming back together in the other. In one month, I got rid of three shepherds. We have no idea what he's really talking about there. Maybe he got rid of three people, chief priests or scribes or whatever. Not necessarily chief priests, but priests. But that's what happens. One month, I got three of the shepherds. The flock detested me. And I grew weary of them. And I said, I will not be your shepherd. Let the dying die. Let the perishing perish. Let those who are left eat one another's flesh. So there's a huge breakdown in relationship here. Zechariah is like, you know what? You detest me when I'm trying to do the best thing for you. And you know what? I'm a little tired of you. So we'll just let the dying die and the perishing perish. Hardcore, huh? Then I took my staff called favor and broke it, revoking the covenant I had made with the nations. So in this, the prophet's kind of talking both as prophet and God. He's breaking this covenant. And one thing that the church doesn't seem to understand, because you get these folks that, that very much kind of worship the current nation of Israel, is, you know, this, that God is going to always keep this place and they never broke the covenant. The covenant was broken between God and Israel throughout the Old Testament. It gets broken all the time by the people of Israel. All the time. That's why they ended up going into exile. And the fact they still exist is just evidence of God's grace and God's forgiveness. This covenant between God and Israel, the promise made to him and between him and David, was conditional. And Israel did not meet those conditions over and over and over again. The fact that there still is an Israel to this day is a true miracle of God. So he breaks it. He breaks the staff called favor, revoking the covenant. It was revoked on that day. And so the afflicted of the flock who were watching me knew it was the word of the Lord. So they realized, "Uh uh-oh. And I told them, if you think it's best, give me my pay. But if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. Now, in Hebrew, the word potter there is actually the former. So sometimes your English Bibles might say throw it to the furnace or throw it to the one who forms things. But in the Septuagint, which Jesus often usually quotes, Jesus quotes the Septuagint, in the, which is a Greek form of the, of the Old Testament. The word is the same, potter. Throw it to the potter. The handsome price at which they, pray, they paid me or priced me. It's a, it's a sarcastic thing, this handsome price. 
one month's wage for leading the people. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. And then I broke the second staff called Union, breaking the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. It's a powerful little piece of scripture because you can feel the, the hurt, the anger, the disappointment. And I think that this is really the most telling part. The flock detested me and I grew weary of them. And I will no longer be your shepherd. Let the dying die and let the perishing perish. And we see Jesus actually relay similar words to this in the Gospel of Matthew when he gets tired of it, you know, especially around the place of unbelief. He says, oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Jesus very much reacted towards the unbelief in the same way Zechariah reacted towards the, the unbelief when he was the prophet of the people. How long am I putting up with this? There's another place when they say, you know, show us this miraculous sign, the Pharisees say to him, and Jesus says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. But none will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, as, as prophecy goes, obviously there's like some rules that are kind of switched around here because Judas is the one that takes the money. It's not given to Jesus. But Judas decides the price for the, for the prophet, the price for Jesus, is 30 pieces of silver, and then Judas throws it back. And Matthew makes this connection to this prophecy, that this is, this is something that happened within the context of Zechariah's time, but it was a foreshadowing of what was to come in the time of Christ. And Judas' actions reflect what was to be coming. And I believe that basically what you see here, even though you don't have it written down as a Judas... We don't know exactly what he was thinking, but there's some point he just decided he was getting off Jesus' way of going. He was, he was tired of him, and, and Jesus got tired of Judas. I think that's, that's what the exchange in John is. Go, go do what you're going to go do, but do it quickly. It's kind of this exchange between Judas and Jesus that they're done. Judas has decided to betray Jesus, and Jesus is like, go do it, do it quickly. And that Judas had decided that Jesus was not going the direction that he wanted Jesus to go. So he sold him out. And the story of Jesus at this point enters into this very tense and climatic week, the week that's leading to the resurrection, the crucifixion. We see the disciples staying silent as Jesus tries to warn them. We see the chief, chief priests and the Pharisees plotting for his death. We see these, in the example of these two women, some folks kind of acting in a devotional but somewhat confused manner around him. Jesus gives them the context. And then you see Judas turn his heart away from Christ. They're all entering into the same crisis. They're all entering into the same battle. But they're all relating to Jesus in a different way. And bringing it back around to us then, you know, we're going to enter battles and crisis in our life. Everyone will. It'll be the battle or crisis of your marriage, battle of crisis with your kids, battle or crisis with your job. We all go through battles and crises in our lives. The question becomes for the believer, what part is Jesus going to have as you go through that crisis in your life? Is he going to have a part? If any, what part is he going to have in your life? Because if you go through the battle like the disciples did, 
They seem to not really want to hear what Jesus is plainly saying to them. They claim to be wanting to follow Jesus, but when Jesus lays out clearly what's going to happen, they just kind of go, la, 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 whatever. They don't hear it. They don't want, they seem not to be able to hear it. And sometimes I see this with Christians, and I, you know, I'm a believer who, who's a human being too. There are times we enter a crisis, and Jesus may clearly say, or the scripture says, clearly this is how this should be handled. And we go, yeah, but it's different for me. Because in my unique personal relationship with God, what is written down for everyone else applies to everyone else, but I'm unique. I see this a lot when people deal with marriage issues. And I would say that if you go into a crisis in your life not willing to hear what Jesus is actually saying or not hearing what the Bible is actually saying, you're setting yourself up to be like the disciples, confused, broken when the crisis hits its worst point, not knowing where to turn, hiding like the disciples hid while Jesus was crucified, falling into the depression, going into a place of unbelief. You need to be willing to hear what Jesus is saying in the Bible. You need to know the Scripture, and you need to know it. Because one of the things that happens so much, especially on TV with the prosperity gospel, is people will say, the Bible says, and they say, blah, 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 blah. It's not in the Bible. But people don't know the Bible, so they nod and they get led in a wrong direction. You need to know what the Bible says. And you need to be willing to accept what the Bible says. It's not very uh, popular today to say you need to submit and conform to the Scripture instead of trying to submit and conform the Scripture to you. But that's what you need to do. We need to conform and submit to the Scripture, not the other way around, in my humble opinion. Then you have the ways like the, the Pharisees. They had this resentment already built up towards Jesus. And sometimes I've noticed people can be angry towards God. They've got resentments that have built up over the years. And they're afraid to say it out loud because they're afraid somehow that God doesn't know what's really going on in their heads. So they won't admit the deal that they are upset with God and they've been fighting with God in their souls for years. And sometimes it's over things that really are understandable. Like they've been abused by someone in the church or something like that. But being angry with God is never going to be a solution in your life. It's like being angry at the sun and deciding you're going to throw a glass of water at it to put it out. It's just not going to work. Being angry with God is being on the losing side. The Pharisees and the chief priests found that out. They were on the losing side of history. Or you can go into the battles with a willingness to trust Jesus, even if you don't really understand everything that's going on. I think these ladies, these women that, that approached Jesus and anoint him, everyone around, everyone around them didn't understand what they were doing. In fact, the disciples were indignant, angry with them. John points out that the one that got mad at Mary was Judas himself. John doesn't like Judas. He points him out by name many times. But Jesus understood what they were doing. And even though these ladies were acting in a devotion that maybe they didn't quite put together, they were anointing him for his burial, they acted in a devotion and in a faith that Jesus was able to give context to. They trusted him. They gave to him without any sense of receiving back. And Jesus was able to take this somewhat unformed sense of what they were doing and give it context. And we talk about it to this very day. 
Do you approach God like that in a crisis? Do you just trust him? Do you keep doing what you know God wants you to do even though it doesn't make sense to anyone else? You're going to run into times like that. Oh, you shouldn't stay in this relationship. They're being X, Y, Z. They'll name something that's going wrong in it. You should just go. Or you shouldn't, I've had people tell me their financial advisor says, you shouldn't tithe. Giving 10% of your income to the church, that's just financial suicide. What are you thinking? I've had financial advisors tell that to me. I'm the pastor. I kind of have to tithe. Are you going to follow through even though the whole world says you're nuts based on your devotion to Christ? And then finally we have Judas. Do you go into a crisis think that you know better than God? Do you approach a crisis thinking that your way is better than God's way? Are you a little bit tired of having to follow the Jesus way? Again, you get told, and I get told, I was told one time, you know, from the pulpit, I I try and be fairly authentic. I'm I'm a human being, so there's just some things that I, like anyone, don't really necessarily want to air out in front of everybody, but I try to be fairly authentic. And I had a person tell, and that means including my ups and downs and tell stories where I'm not the hero. Sometimes I'm the jerk. And I've had a guy one time tell me when I first arrived in Germany, you can't do that. If you admit that you have faults or wrong, that's going to be used against you. You, ne- you can't do that from the pulpit. And I told him, well, I don't think I really have a choice. Because if I'm going to be real, then I have to expose my reality. My reality is I'm not perfect. I'm far, far from it. I'd rather have someone dislike me for being authentic than people like a false sense of me. And the irony is, just by admitting that, I know for many of you, I get further put up on a pedestal. Pastoring thing's a weird thing. But do you go into a situation thinking you know better than Jesus? That You know, this idea of forgiveness, it's not realistic in the business world. Or this idea of, of being willing to help others without a sense of what you're going to get out of it. You can't do that in advance in your career. That's what the world will often tell you. Are you going to choose to believe that or are you going to choose to follow Christ? Even if it comes at a price from a worldly point of view. What were they thinking? What are you thinking? We're all going to run into crises in our lives at some point. And where Jesus is in our lives in that crisis is going to determine where we come out on the other side. We can come out like Judas Broken, as broken as a human being can be. Broken unto self-death. We can come out like Peter, a little confused, not quite sure where he stood with Jesus. Or we can come out like John. John doesn't really seem to have any issues with his faith after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. He's the only one that stood with Christ. And you also have Mary and Martha and the mother of Jesus. They stood with him the whole way. You never hear about them struggling with faith. Where is Jesus going to be in the crisis, in the battles of your life? Where he is in that is going to determine how you come through it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and thank you for the, the richness of your word and the people that are in your story and, and uh, even the, the ones that are far from perfect, the disciples, I guess even to a certain extent Judas, because we learn from him. 
Well, Father, we know that in our own lives, we're going to go through times of crisis. We know that there are going to be times in our careers, in our relationships, in what we want to do with our life in the future. Lord, things like health, that there are going to be times of crisis. And Father, we pray that as we go through those times that we will be mindful of your place in all of our life. You're not just our object of worship or the person that we turn to when we're feeling good about life. And nor are you just the one we turn to when we feel like there's something bad and we want to get something from you. But you are to be that rock, that place that we can rely upon and trust no matter what goes on around us. We trust. And wherever that trust leads us, if we keep our eyes on you, it will lead us to your, your throne. And so, Father, we pray that you would help the people that we know who are in crisis. We pray again for Maggie, and we pray for her family. God, they're in a massive crisis. We pray for the kids and everyone around them that's just kind of shaking their heads, wondering, where are you in this? Help them to keep their eye on you, trust you. And if that means uh, they get called home earlier than we would like, they can still trust you. We do pray you bring healing into their life, though. That's what we ask. That's what we want, especially for the sake of the kids. We want that. And Lord, we pray also that when we are tempted to hear people tell us that our faith is practical on Sunday, but impractical Monday through Friday, as we're in the workplace, that we would reject that lie and we would choose to live as salt and light in the world, that we would be those beacons of hope, of truth. And Lord, we pray that we would not let anything divide us, but we would keep our eyes solely upon you as our Lord and our Savior, and everything else would fall to the side. May we glorify you, not just in our time of worship today, but in how we live our life through the difficult times as well as the good times. Because in the end, you rise again, and we will rise again with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.